Hello, Bethel Church family. Though we are not together, it is still good to worship the Lord our God. This will be a different experience for all of us, and I pray that God would still be glorified as we seek to worship Him in spirit and in truth. In the next couple of days, please feel free to reach out to me with any feedback you have. This is going to be very trial and error. So please know that your feedback is welcome. And I'd like to open my time with you by praying for us as well as for our nation and for the world, if you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and that your love endures forever. We thank you, Lord, that you are the almighty God who reign over everything. And you, O Lord are worthy of our worship. And I thank You, O God, that we can come to You and pray to You even when we're scared, even when we're anxious and nervous, and we testify, O God, that You are good and that everything is still in Your control. Father, we pray to You regarding the virus that is spreading around the world and in our nation, and we ask, O God, that by Your providential and mighty hand that You would slow the spread of this virus. That You, O God, would prevent people from becoming infected. And that those who are infected would be healed. That You, O God, are a healer. And so please, O Lord, bring healing to those who are suffering with sickness. We pray also for those who are grieving the people who've already died from this virus. We think especially of other nations that have been hit terribly hard. We think of Italy and other places, oh God. We pray that You would comfort those left behind, that You would comfort those who are grieving and point them to the resurrection of Jesus, that they would know the hope of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that You would please be with those medical workers and medical staff that are working diligently around the clock to serve You and to serve their fellow man. We ask, O God, that You would strengthen them, help them to endure, keep them healthy, O God. Allow them to persevere by Your grace, O God, to serve You well. O God, we pray that You would please give wisdom to the decision makers in our nation and around the world. That You would help them to wisely make decisions and to lead the people with their best interests in mind, O God. We pray even for the leaders of our church and other churches as we seek to make decisions in this difficult time. Help us, O God, and give us wisdom and discernment to know what to do in this unprecedented experience we're going through. We pray, O God, that You would please calm our fear and our anxiety that You would give us the peace that surpasses understanding in Jesus Christ, that You would help us to trust in You, to fear You, O God, instead of what may come. Do not let us be anxious and worry about tomorrow, but let us seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness. Father, I pray also that You would help us to find joy in this very weird time. Help us to seek You to delight in Your creation, to delight in time with family or on the phone with friends. Help us, O God, to use this time as a kind of reset and to rejoice in You and the blessings You have given to us. 
Almighty God, we pray that you would be with your people around the world, with Christians everywhere, as there has been this great disruption to our normal manner of gathered worship. And we pray that you would help us continue to worship you, even though we are not together. May we delight in worshiping you, O God. In this very difficult time, we ask your blessing on us at Bethel Church, O God, that you would bless us, that we can bless others, that you would comfort us so that we can live faithfully for you, that you would provide for our needs in abundance, that we can with open hands give to the needy. Lord, help us to grow in godliness and repent of our sin in this time. Be with those who are grieving, O Lord, and comfort them. Be with our sick and our ill and heal them, O God. And we ask all of these things in the strong and mighty name of Jesus who taught us to pray with the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Two weeks ago, we heard the great promise that we found in Isaiah 44 and 45 that God was going to raise up a man named Cyrus to bring God's people back from exile in Babylon. It was really good news for a people facing the terrifying crisis of exile. But underneath the excitement and the hope of this promised return was a deeper problem that returning from exile could not solve. Cyrus may be able to bring Judah back to their land, but he cannot bring them back to their God. He cannot rid them of the sin that caused the exile in the first place. That is a much taller task, one that Cyrus cannot do in any way. So who can? In chapter 49, Isaiah again mentions this servant of the Lord who can be the Savior Israel needs. Isaiah says that this servant is capable of accomplishing God's plan of salvation. So let's take a look at our passage from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7. Hopefully you have your Bibles at home with you. I unfortunately cannot tell you the page number, but we are in Isaiah, roughly in the middle of the Bible, chapter 49, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. 
Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He that is the Lord says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and that You speak to us by Your Word. Help me to proclaim Your Word even on this recording and that people would hear it as Your Word, O God. Not that I speak infallibly, but that You in Your Word speak infallibly, O God. So help me to expound this Word and give us ears to hear and hearts and minds to hear it. In Jesus' name, Amen. The big idea I want us to see in our passage today is about this servant of the Lord who we know is Jesus. The Lord exalts this humble servant Jesus to save people from all over the earth by bringing them back to a right relationship with their holy God. In our passage today, Isaiah walks us through this idea and first he shows us how the servant is equipped for the task of salvation. And then he shows us the difficulties in accomplishing this task before finally looking at the incredible scope of this salvation. First, Isaiah describes how the servant is equipped to save. The servant does not need to apply for the job of Savior or demonstrate his qualifications because the Lord has formed him from before birth in his mother's womb. Just as God called Cyrus by name and chose him to bring his people back from exile, so also God has chosen this servant for the specific task of bringing his people back to him relationally. Knowing this servant is Jesus Christ, our New Testament reading from Luke 1 describes this miraculous forming in the womb that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and He is both fully God and fully man. Even from this moment of conception, He was named Jesus, a name which points to His task of being a Savior. God was molding and shaping His servant Jesus to fulfill the task of saving His people. Isaiah might prefer to use the word forging as opposed to molding and shaping because in verse 2, he uses weapon imagery to explain his point. Isaiah compares the servant to both a sword and an arrow. 
Each of these weapons is forged or made for a purpose. They are each important in war, fulfilling the task for which they were made. God isn't having to MacGyver a weapon out of a stapler and a paperclip. He isn't trying to use whatever he has on hand to get the job done. God formed and made this servant for a specific purpose. So what is that specific purpose? And how is Jesus equipped to complete that purpose? Verse 5 tells us that the Father formed Jesus from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. That's not simply a geographic bring back from exile that Cyrus will accomplish. No, this is the relational return to the Lord that sinful Israel has been avoiding. Cyrus had the political power to release the exiles to their homeland. But Jesus has the spiritual power to restore sinners to their holy God. Jesus is fully divine and he is without sin, meaning that he can fulfill the requirement of God's holy law by perfectly obeying God's commands. But Jesus is also fully human, meaning that he can take our place as the perfect substitute on the cross where he receives the punishment that we deserve. See, Jesus was not simply equipped as a motivator to encourage people to obey. He has not merely been equipped as an example or model for us to model our lives after. Because motivators and examples may help in the short term, but they cannot fix the deep heart problem of sin. Jesus was equipped for the far more difficult task of saving sinners and restoring them to God. But it's not simply this task itself that is difficult. Salvation is made more difficult by the perception of those on the inside and on the outside. And you think it is going poorly. For example, let's imagine that during this quarantine you were trying to make a new recipe based on whatever ingredients happen to be in your pantry. You are unsure of yourself because you don't cook all that often. And so your perception, your internal perception of yourself is that things are going poorly. To make matters worse, your spouse or your child is also watching you, looking at the weird mixtures in the pot. They are backseat driving and they perceive that this recipe is going to be a disaster. Those external perceptions also think it is going poorly. And so those internal and external perceptions make a difficult task even more difficult. And the same goes for the servant in his task of salvation. We see that internal perception of the servant in verse 4, where he says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. The servant says his work doesn't seem like it's working. He is frustrated by what he feels like are futile efforts. Knowing that we should identify the servant with Jesus, we may feel a little weird attributing those feelings of frustration to him. But Jesus was fully human. Feeling the human emotions of frustration and discouragement without being led into sin. 
that discouragement is compounded by the external perception of others who perceive the servant's work negatively. That's what we see in verse 7, where the servant is described as one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. The world finds him grotesque. The world hates him. The rulers view him as lower class, like a slave or a servant who is beneath them. Even though God has handcrafted him to save his people, there are many who cannot see the honor that this servant deserves. Imagine how often Jesus must have been frustrated by the religious leaders of his day. He was healing person after person, and that was great, but the sick people kept on coming. Was he even making a dent in the problem? How frustrated must Jesus be with our stubbornness, blindness, and our repeated sins that we know we should not do? In the face of discouragement, the servant remembers his calling, continuing in verse 4 by saying, Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God, with my God. In spite of those frustrations, he tells himself, yet surely God is with me. God forms him and called him for this purpose. God will be faithful in accomplishing this purpose through him. And God will ensure that his work of salvation is properly honored We read this in verse 4 when the servant says, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. God knows the value of His servant's work, and He will make sure others know that value as well. For in verse 7, we read how the scoffers will soon bow before the servant. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The servant's labor will not be in vain. A day will come when every despising knee will bow and confess the worth of the servant. God will ensure that the servant is honored because God Himself will faithfully strengthen the servant to save His people. But what is remarkable about these verses in Isaiah 49 is that the servant will not only save Israel. It isn't simply the descendants of Abraham who will be saved. God says that would be too light a thing. Think about that. God says that saving the people of Israel would be too small of a job for His servant. Remember, this is the stubbornly sinful and idolatrous people that the prophet Isaiah has been calling to repentance. And God is saying that saving them, saving that sinful people will be too light of a job. And so God expands the scope of the servant's work of salvation by saying, I will make you as a light for the nations that my people may reach to the end of the earth. Not only will the servant work to save Israel, 
He will work to save people from all nations to the very ends of the earth. Saving one group of people is not enough. Jesus saves the world. This would be like hearing some doctor on the news today saying that finding a vaccine for the coronavirus would be too small of an accomplishment for him to do. Yes, it would be a good thing to find a vaccine, of course, but this person, this doctor, would feel like they needed to do something more than that. And so the doctor said, not only will I find a cure for this or a vaccine for this coronavirus, but I will also find a way to cure Alzheimer's and cancer while I'm at it. That would sound audacious and crazy to us. And yet God announces that His servant will not simply do something great for His own people. He will do what no one else can do. He will bring salvation to people from every nation. While God is delighted to bring His people back from exile, the servant will offer salvation beyond the borders of Israel and Judah. That is why chapter 49 starts with a call for peoples from afar and for the coastlands to listen. The servant is not just for Israel. He brings salvation to all the people of the world. That salvation is not merely a return to a safe home like the promised land. It is not simply a return to normal life. Isn't that what we're longing for? A return to normal life? Don't we wish we were here in this room on Sunday morning worshiping God together? Don't we wish kids could go back to school, that we could go back to work, that the world could get back to normal? That would be so nice. But God sent this servant to do something far greater than put our normal earthly lives right. He has other servants like Cyrus whom he can providentially use to restore things like normal life. But it is only through this servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, that we can be restored to God and to eternal life. It is only in Jesus that we can be truly saved. For Jesus was formed from the womb through the virginal conception made from the very beginning for the specific purpose of bringing salvation not only to Israel, but to the end of the earth. And he does it in a way that does not seem successful. It seemed that he spent his strength for nothing when he was arrested and sentenced to die. He seemed to have labored in vain as he hung on the cross to die. And as he hung there, Many onlookers despised his gruesome body. They abhorred his righteousness that made their own self-righteousness seem so pathetic. And they saw in his death him fail to show power over the rulers of his own people. The perception was that this servant Jesus failed. But God had chosen him for this purpose, to die as unlikely and difficult as it seemed. And the Holy One of Israel was faithful. He accepted the death of His servant as a sacrifice for the sins of the world so that we can be brought back to God. 
And this servant, Jesus, is now honored above every name because he rose again from the dead, being glorified by God the Father. The servant that Israel and the whole world needs is Jesus Christ. And his work of salvation has been accomplished. But our perception of that work of salvation can be faulty. As we live in this moment of crisis with a world that is suffering, we wonder, how is it that Jesus has saved the world? How is it that this Jewish man from 2,000 years ago is the answer to our deepest problems? Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I am still worried and I still may suffer. Will Jesus be enough? You see, our perception of Jesus' work may waver. But God assures us with His divine perspective that Jesus Christ saves sinners. He assures us that the Holy Spirit indwells His people to comfort them. He assures us that the resurrection of Jesus is the living proof that He has power over death. He assures us that He is in control of the future by predicting in advance the ministry of Jesus our Savior. God's divine perspective is given to us in His Word to help shape our perfection, our perception of Jesus. The Word of God helps us to see Jesus in the words of our Old Testament reading from Psalm 62. That He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. My salvation rests on God. Our salvation does not rest on our feeble attempts at good works. Our salvation does not rest simply on our feeble faith. Our salvation rests on our rock, on our Savior, the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending us the servant Jesus. We thank You that You formed Him and made Him for the specific purpose of saving us. We thank You, O God, that You called Your shot so far in advance by announcing through the prophet Isaiah and all throughout the Old Testament the need for this servant who was to come. And He came and He saves us, O God. In this uncertain and anxious time, O Lord, we pray that You would help us to trust in our rock. To trust in You. To know that as normal life may not return as quickly as we like, we have something else far more secure, and that is our eternal life with You, O oh God. And we thank You. We thank You that in this time we can trust in Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, I'd like to leave you with a benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.